For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. The unsurpassed, profound, and wondrous Dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Now I can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May I unfold the meaning of the Tathagata's truth. I was thinking that we were going to need to go around and say names, but I guess um, we're back to all knowing who's here. Um, So welcome, everyone. I would like to introduce today my friend and Dharma sister, Hogetsu Lori Belzer, um, who really needs no introduction because I think everyone knows Hogetsu in different ways. But I will say that... I met Hogetsu before Ancient Dragon um, existed, and Hogetsu was one of the two founding members of Ancient Dragon, and so I've I've really known her ever since. I, and um, uh, Hogetsu has been touched all of our lives. You know, she has been our Tenzo and a board member and our long, long time sewing teacher. I think she's probably helped all of us sew something. And um, she is back now from receiving Dharma transmission from her longtime teacher and friend, Tayo Lipscomb. And I can't wait to hear all that she has to say. So welcome, Hoketsu. Thank you for being here. Thank you for that lovely introduction, uh, Aishan. Good morning. It's morning here in Chicago. Uh, Dragon Bodhisattvas. I'm sitting here alone, in or apparently alone, let's say, in our Ebenezer Zendo space, in our temple space in Chicago, in the vast Ebenezer Lutheran complex. So... Um, once again, uh, a local surge of the pandemic has caused us to pause physical practice together at Ebenezer. So we're lucky to have the cloud for many, many reasons to be able to be together. Um, but I think it's good to hold space in this physical temple and remember our practice together over so many years as it evolves. So as Aishan mentioned, I recently returned from Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, And many times I felt deep gratitude to each one of you and our collective Oh, wonderful, beloved, ancient dragon, Sangha. During this time, I felt boundlessly supported by the Sangha uh, while I was in this distant land of Asheville, North Carolina. Um, And I will say a little bit more about that experience um, with my root teacher, Tayo, and... uh, my transmission teacher and Dharma friends in Asheville. Uh, But first, I would like to acknowledge um, recent sad and tragic loss of life in our country and in our world. Um, The harm born of violence, racism, hatred, ignorance, and greed, 
didn't seem to care much about my Dharma transmission ceremony. It continued. Um, We had the second anniversary of the cruel killing of George Floyd. We had loss of life in Buffalo, New York, actually not far from where I was born in Buffalo, New York. War in the Ukraine, killing now in this school in Texas, and over a million Americans dead, lost to COVID. So may our practice support the healing in our world. And may all people relinquish, put down their weapons, and find peace. So I think our practice our Zen practice, our way in Soto Zen is a practice of disarmament. You could say it's a a deep violence prevention program. I heard somebody on the news saying, oh, we need to research more about violence prevention. And I think we don't necessarily need a data scientist, but we have the experiential information in our Zen practice to deeply understand violence um, and to know peace and how to live in this way in our daily lives, whether we're seated in a zendo or walking down the street uh, or encountering the painful news that we're um, somewhat assaulted with. Uh, there's a violence even in the way news is conveyed on a daily basis. So this wish to learn peace and disarmament was literally conveyed to me. This Soto Zen style of just sitting um, came to me from my own wish to practice peace and disarmament, literally. I'm sure each of you um, has some kind of experience that connected you to your awakened heart, this desire to practice. Nobody's here today uh, probably because you want to be more violent and harmful in the world. I think everyone here is spending a Sunday morning doing this strange, silent practice Because you know there's a different possibility, that there's a way to live and be in the world that expresses harmony and peace. Um, And that this is a hard practice. But something, this bodhicitta, this mind of awakening brings you, mind of awakening for the benefit of everyone, without exception. This all-inclusive practice is what ultimately and maybe fundamentally brings us together. Um, At least that's my story. So as many of you know, I met my root teacher, Tayo, literally on a peace walk where the goal was citizen diplomacy in the service of nuclear disarmament. I was a young person then, although I probably thought I knew more than I actually did. Um, I was definitely a peacenik, and I noticed that I and other peaceniks did not actually seem to be practicing peace in the way they may have related to themselves, to other people, and to the planet. You know, like throwing garbage out the window or, you know... Uh, actually thinking, oh, well, let's tell other people how to be peaceful, (laughs) you know. And despite best intentions, training in civil disobedience, nonviolent protests, learning skills and conflict resolution, my own training as a psychotherapist, which was in process at that time, I felt I needed help that something wasn't quite right. 
that I needed to learn more about peace and also how to really relate to and understand violence, the violence that creates suffering. So I also felt there was kind of an inner disarmament that maybe might be required for this person. That I could feel relating to the world in sort of a harsh way. So I was really lucky on this peace walk to notice someone who seemed to actually be practicing peace and kindness and openness in a very natural way uh, without carrying a sign (laughs) or even dialoguing about nonviolence. And this person, as you know, is my teacher, Tayo, became my teacher and was a priest from San Francisco Zen Center. And his job was to be head cook for this crazy peace march where people often uh, were pretty upset that they didn't always get the food that they were expecting to get because we had some supply chain issues on occasion. So all these peaceniks, the minute you took away their favorite, you know, delightful brown rice or something like that, uh, could complain pretty violently. But this person, Tayo, I noticed just related to every situation in a pretty kind and relaxed way and wasn't trying to oppose anyone or control the situation, but invited a kind of harmony that spread actually throughout this camp of many uh, folk. <laughs> and it was interesting how he even found this peace walk. He was uh, working at the front office at San Francisco Zen Center on Page Street, and someone in the office, actually, I think it was uh, Alan Sanaki's wife, Lori who answered a phone call. And after she hung up the phone, she laughed and said, oh, you know, we Zen students are far too busy. Someone just called and said they want someone to help out with a peace walk. And none of us can do that. We're too busy, you know, taking care of this temple. And my teacher said, oh, well, maybe I can, I have a little time. Maybe I can go do that. And so 30, over 30 years later, here we are. So this is how things happen sometimes. So this Peace March meeting just continued on. This Peace March meeting 35 years ago continued on with me traveling to Asheville a few weeks ago. Um, And really, it was just to engage in a practice of peace with my teacher and his wife and some Dharma friends. You know, this meeting continued in this series of private ceremonies, uh, sometimes kind of secret ceremonies, known as Dharma transmission, kind of a mystery. And I received many, many gifts during that ceremonial process. One of them is, you know, this brown robe, uh, which in our tradition we sew and then give away and then get back kind of a nice practice we take a piece of fabric and we cut it up into pieces and we put it together again and then we put all this work into it we give it away and then we get it back (laughs) so um it's kind of a nice model for our lives falling apart coming together giving away receiving uh and another gift that i received was being entrusted uh, with this practice of peace and nonviolence that is our Soto Zen way, our family style, this style rooted in silent illumination, in our Zazen of just sitting minute by minute, breath by breath, day by day, Year by year, we just continue and settle more deeply into non-dual awareness. We discover what that means. We can read about it. We can think about it. But 
to really settle into that is the project of at least one long life, perhaps many lifetimes, to actually discover how to live and engage in our world from this place of peace. So I'm sorry that I can't offer you uh, a simple solution to stop gun violence or racism or war or any real solution, but I am not recommending a withdrawal from difficulty into some kind of meditative numbness. This is the Zen zombieism that we know to guard against. But I can only say that there seems to be a middle way, a way to wander through our world, practicing peace and friendliness, walking, walking, the Buddha's path in our 2022 earth world with all of its violence, beauty, and mystery. The birds are still singing here at Ebenezer. I can hear even nests that when the parents come by, the babies are opening their beaks, asking for more snacks. (laughs) So I'll share a little more if it's okay, uh, about my experience of our Buddha family practice of disarmament, that our Zen way is a shift from threat and fear mode. You know, I'm sure you all know what this threat and fear mode feels like in your bodies, right? You're tense, you're alert for danger, and just wanting to defend at all costs. This is, of course, a root of violence, fear, and threat mode. It's sort of a biological mode. But somehow in our practice, I don't know how it happens, but we learn this backward step or with this shift into Buddha mode, (laughs) this nurturing mode of peace and compassion. You know, weapons and violence are produced by being caught in uh, a divided consciousness, a dividing consciousness that cuts up the world. Into objects and subjects, us and them, right and wrong, good and bad, winners and losers, you know. And part of our work, our bodhisattva work, is we pick up those pieces like we do Buddha's robe (laughs) and help them find their wholeness again. We do this not only externally, but internally, where we learn to give up internal violence in our practice. These might seem kind of subtle, but if you sit for a little while, like almost all of you have been doing for many years, if not decades, you probably know what it's like to see your internal violence program and study how to give that up, such as self-criticism, anger, numbness, rigidity, oppression, confusion. You see how that impacts yourself and others because we are not separate. Um, And when we also give up external weapons that manifest in our relationship with people and the material world through our actions of body, speech, and mind. So this Buddha disarmament that I'm making up, (laughs) part of our Buddha violence prevention program is also practicing the precepts, you know, that we have to figure out how to live as humans in this world. Um, Sometimes this Buddha disarmament, this nonviolence program is called acting without a gaining idea, living without trying to control and manipulate the world for personal convenience. And, you know, in the pandemic, we've kind of sunk into kind of this convenience mind a little bit. And I've just cautioned against that, afraid to leave our house, 
uh, or, you know, there's so much, but you know what I mean? Personal convenience above all, uber alles. Uh, and Suzuki Roshi speaks about this constantly, this Buddha disarmament, when he talks about big mind, a compassionate mind that includes everything and everyone. This is our lineage and heritage. This is what Suzuki Roshi, I feel, really brought to us. He didn't go into great philosophical detail about you know, different types of consciousness or philosophical arguments. Those are all wonderful. It's wonderful that people study Nagarjuna and uh, study Yogacara. You're all very bright, wonderful philosophers. But this big mind that includes everything says a lot. So when your mind... So Suzuki Roshi says in this prologue in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, when your mind becomes demanding, you long for something. You will end up violating your own precepts not to tell lies, not to steal, not to kill, not to be immoral, and so forth. But if you keep your original mind, your big mind, the precepts will keep themselves In the beginner's mind, there's no thought that I have attained something. All self-centered thoughts limit your vast mind. When you have no thought of achievement, no thought of self, and this is in a small self way, you all know what that self-nugget is. We need to care for it and tend to that little baby bird of small self. But we also have to help it learn the truth of our interconnectedness. Um, So Suzuki Roshi goes on to say, when we have no thought of achievement, no thought of self, we are true beginners. Then we can really learn something. The beginner's mind is the mind of compassion. When our mind is compassionate, it is boundless. Dogen Zenji the founder of our school, always emphasized how important it is to resume our boundless original mind. Then we are always true to ourselves in sympathy with all beings and can actually practice. And I'll just add, we can actually practice peace. So when I went to Asheville, you know, part of what was going on is connecting with this lineage this long lineage back to Shakyamuni Buddha, all of which, by the way, are male. (laughs) So when I received lineage papers, there was one female name, and that was mine. Nonetheless, uh, I went to Asheville not really knowing what to expect. You know, often Dharma transmission occurs in a dedicated temple with a large amount of community support. It often happens kind of quietly and privately. You know, Tigan, who's sadly not feeling well today and not with us today, received Dharma transmission from his teacher, Reb Anderson, uh, at uh, Tassajara, which some of you have visited. Tayo, my teacher, received Dharma transmission from his teacher, Reb Anderson, uh, at Green Gulch Farm. And Douglas, I think, had the altar of Green Gulch uh, on his background at some point, that beautiful altar, a really exalted place to receive uh, Dharma transmission. And Asian and Neozon received Dharma transmission from Taigen at our temple on Irving Park, which is now moved to this location here at Ebenezer. But my teacher was retired from temple life. Uh, Yet, we created a temple and ceremony space in this private home. His wife, not a Zen practitioner, Susan, was our cook, our Tenzo. She made all meals for us during this time together. Uh, someone came from Colorado 
to help us and teach us how to do these compliment, complicated ceremonies, Kokio. So he joined us for the final week. And, I, you know, miraculously, there was a neighbor next door who happened to be a former Zen student. And he also could come over as needed to help us. <laughs> so it was an interesting coming together of people in a completely new situation. Um, and mostly it was just the four of us. First thing in the morning and last thing, I would carry around a box of incense to altars we made all over this personal home, uh, which is something you can do in your own homes. You can have altars everywhere and make offerings. Just to remind you, oh, we can practice peace. Let me practice peace in every room of my house. So there were altars all over. I'm doing these chants, and, and I would begin and end the day that way with many other ceremonies in between. Um, and then after the morning round of offering, we would gather for Zazen in an attic that was converted into a Zendo and then converted into a ceremonial space. And most of this time we worked together in silence, <laughs> in silence and all creating this situation that was very different than what probably most of us had experienced as like normal Zen temple practice, you know, in these beautiful places with Japanese inspired buildings, some of them built by someone like Paul Disco, you know, but this was a humble home, little rental home in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, and the schedule pretty much had no breaks except for sleep. <laughs> so I was kind of exhausted most of the time. But um, this, in this temple, a temple, a sanctuary was built, and we just called it Hill Temple. So we just turned an ordinary home into a temple. And this practice of peace was always in the background. Despite feeling exhausted, we just supported each other to care for the details of every life, everyday life. So like every moment was actually a ceremony. And I will put this forth that in this practice of our Zen practice, whether we're sitting Zazen or whatever we're doing, every moment is a moment of peace and a moment of ceremony. If you realize it. So these details, you know, were things like taking care of the compost and recycling tape that we used and ink that we used, we saved carefully for the next day. If we didn't have all the like ritual materials that we needed, uh, there's a lot of art, art projects in Dharma transmission in our way. Um, we didn't have all the right materials we kind of improvised and it was relaxed um and we even discussed like somebody had given me silk for these documents and uh Kokio mentioned that he'd found a type of uh fabric plant-based fabric that didn't was that could work as silk and I thought oh how wonderful maybe someday we'll do that instead of Silk, killing silkworms, you know. Um, but I didn't say, oh, the silk somebody gave me isn't pure enough, so I need to, like, get some of this other plant-based material. I took what was given, and that was just fine. But this is how we learn. We learn, like, oh, maybe we can do this a little differently, a little more caringly, a little more harmoniously. Um, we would have, during meals... You know, we'd have friendly conversations, sharing, <laughs> sharing Zen family stories. Uh, stink bugs would fly into the room and we'd pick them up and escort them out the window. Uh, and this is the living together, this way of living together. Uh, was this how we connected with our Zen lineage and family style? 
You know, this is also how our Sangha, our ancient dragon Sangha, is working with our situation now, with our temple that has arisen uh, at Zoom and Ebenezer. We are helping each other to practice peace with what is at hand in our shifting conditions. Uh, And this kind of creatively supporting each other and encouraging each other and teaching each other how to practice peace and harmony. This is our family style. This is our ancestral heritage. This is what I think our practice has to offer. And I could say a lot more, but I'll just say that um, I was reminded, I was listening to a Dharma talk about the 50th anniversary of Green Gulch Farm, and I was reminded of this beautiful T-shirt that's of a bodhisattva. It's a drawing by Dan Welch, a longtime practitioner. And um, Dan has this beautiful bodhisattva, kind of almost cartoon-like, but really adorable, in the fields of Green Gulch, holding a shovel. And the the quote on the back of it, which I think is what Dan made up, it said, working hard, accomplishing nothing. (laughs) And so this is our, our Zen practice. When we are trying to accomplish nothing, we put our full life energy and something happens that transforms the world. Uh, this is our mode. So, so this practice we do is difficult. It's hard to turn around uh, the momentum of our biology and of our conditioning towards fear and threat and shift out of that mode into wholeness mode, into Buddha mode, and learn this knack. But this is what we do. We learn the snack of the backward step. We look inside and we start to illuminate peace in the world within and without. So I feel that um, no matter what grand vision we might have for our next physical temple space or for our Sangha, if we just continue this practice of working hard, that is doing the work of disarmament inside and outside, the work of peace, and then accomplish nothing, which means accomplishing the nothing of nonviolence, of giving ourselves to the unknown and undivided. And we build a sanctuary, a sangha of peace that's in accord with our time and place, not some ancient Chinese or Japanese or Indian, all those wonderful things, not San Francisco Zen Center, uh, but our way. (laughs) Our way to build our little ambulance our little bodhisattva ambulance that cares for the world Uh, in Chicago, in our homes, wherever we are in our wider Sangha, as we discover how to practice together. Um, So that's enough too much already. So thank you very much bodhisattvas for listening. Um, and supporting me so much for so many years, more than we'll ever know. Um, and I look forward to finding our way together. I would um, love to hear your dharma, your responses, your practice of peace and disarmament. So bring it forth. I think you just unmute yourselves pretty much. Mm-hmm. I um I really liked listening to what you had to say, Hugetsu and Hogetsu, and I'm 
I appreciate very much what you have given us today. Um, I woke up this morning thinking, because I associate with people who um, really believe that the end of the world is nigh and that that we are not going to be able to solve the problems we're facing. Um, I just watched Planet of the Humans, and then I watched the debunking of Planet of the Humans. And you look at all of the things that are going on, and uh, to some people that I've been listening to, uh, namely Guy McPherson of uh, Arizona, and um, they honestly think that, well, one of the things that Guy points out is that if you gathered up all the sands in the whole world, all of the little sand grains in the whole world, and you picked out one of them, a sand grain had a better chance of being picked out than of this world existing if you figure it out mathematically. He's a mathematician and is interested in astronomy and uh, has done the math as to what is the probability of the Earth existing and further the probability that humans would be on it. And he said, mathematically, it's impossible. And so we need to appreciate what we have and to spend the little time that we have left, and he believes it's 10 years or less, loving one another and taking care of one another and living as best we can. I don't want to talk too long, but I, I, I am the most non-television watcher in the room. And I did, I was interested in a, in a, TV series a long time ago called The Paper Chase. And John Houseman played a law professor. I only watched the final episode. I didn't watch any of the rest of it. He gave his students an assignment, divided them into two teams, and gave them two different assignments. But he knew that they were not going to be able to complete these assignments unless they cooperated unless the two teams realized that they needed the other team if they were going to get done, if they were going to be able to finish. And so at the end of the episode, the two people on the two teams realized that they had to cooperate, that they were not, they had to give up competing and they had to cooperate or they wouldn't be able to complete the assignment. And I woke up this morning because you know, I'm very, I'm near the end of my life. I'm 85 years old. And so I thought um, we're going to be able to do it. At some point, there will be a realization that we can't continue without cooperating, if not loving. I mean, the paper chase didn't emphasize any loving it, did it emphasize cooperation and realizing that we need one another if we're going to be, I, I guess successful is the word I want. Not the word I want, but it's the only one I can think of. And so I woke up this morning thinking the human race is going to be able to do it. So that's what I had to say. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you, Jan, for offering your wisdom. I always find you bring such evocative and important perspectives. And that's a nice idea. Um, you know, we're all going down with the ship. So I, you know, and in some ways in our Zen way, we just care for it all the way down to the unknown. 
the end. I don't know what the end is, but, uh, you know, pessimism and kind of a odd sort of optimism are both extremes mm-hmm. and our Buddha way is the middle way. But also I will say that, you know, people talk about the different turnings of the Dharma wheel in philosophical ways. But I feel that our turning that we are offering is one of harmony and peace and inclusivity. That's a very radical shift. You could say it's carrying on Buddha's work, but it's, it's unique in this world and place. And we don't know. It's not just up to us. But the more we act from this place of connection and care, and I would say love, you can love someone and not like them. Yeah. You know? But you can cooperate from this spirit of connection. And this is a possibility that we have and what we are learning together. So uh, thank you for bringing that forth. And I'm glad you see that there might be a possibility, but I don't know if there's any way out of, you know, death, everything well, rises and ceases. <laughs> well, one of the, one of guys uh, points is that everything ends. Mm-hmm. And um, okay. And just one small thing, my orchid bloomed today. For the first time in my life, I have an orchid that bloomed and I put it up here <laughs> and I, I am guilty of being proud of it. So <laughs> I'm happy for you and I'm happy for your orchid. So you stayed with it. You oh, yeah, I, I spray it two or three times a day and I don't pass by without giving it some water and making sure that it's moist and it's been a pain, but <laughs> I a bloom today. But worth it. And so this is our, you know, this is our practice. We tend these things not knowing if it will bloom ever or if we'll ever experience that. But we still care for it. Uh, We still care for each other, given our limitations and within our limitations. Uh, And then sometimes something amazing happens. But we don't hold on to that. We just enjoy it. Um, and enjoy the withering. So thank you again. And I'm congratulations on your orchid. Yeah. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Ogatsu, thank you very much for that talk. That was uh, extremely helpful. Um, I have found myself um, in the last couple of weeks just moving into sometimes feeling stuck in grief and shock and dismay uh, and almost paralyzed. And then, you know, it is in the practice of coming back uh, and just being in the moment, uh, watching your breath um, taking a walk and noticing what's around you, that it's, it's been easier to um, then sink back into my life and pay attention and tend to the things around me that might be helpful. And those things do present themselves. And so, uh, so then that seems like the thing to do, the direction to go. And, um, uh, and, I agree with you. This practice is profound in terms of showing a way to be in peace um, and to interact peacefully. And so to keep it alive, it seems important for us to do. Um, Anyway, thank you for your talk and thank you for your practice and glad to have you back. Thank you, Kathy. Um, you know, Kathy and I are long friends since graduate school. Um, so, you know, this is taking that backward step of being with your numbness and your pain and your grief, allowing it to flow, and then waking up in the middle of it. And it doesn't mean the grief goes away, but maybe the paralysis does or the stuckness. And so, you know, grieving is healthy. 
if we're not grieving about some of the things going on in the world, something's not right. <laughs> you know, like it's a it's a important response to grieve, but grief has has a pure quality to it, you might say. Um, but then you notice the edge of this, like, oh, I'm into like some resistance mode where I don't want this. And then numbness comes up to try to dampen it. Um, and then you shift into shift gears into caring Buddha mode and feel the breeze and connect with the world as it is. And then as Suzuki Roshi says, you know, then maybe you actually might practice. <laughs> so thank you, Kathy, for your deep and long practice seeking peace and harmony for this world. I want to jump in and thank you for a wonderful talk. And I, I just wanted to say that I really, really appreciated what you were saying just a moment ago um, in response to Jan about um, how we, you know, how we, how we live, how we go on, how we continue to do the best we can to take care of ourselves and others. And sometimes something wonderful happens. And because I think that that is, it seems to me that that's one of the hardest things to hold on to is that faith that um, and and the the faith and the wisdom to know that that is really all we can do that 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 there are many um, unskillful things that we think we we can try but um, but but that what we what we really need to do is hang in there with what we have come to have faith in and believe in and and I wonder if you could say you know, just any, any sort of comforting words about that process and how hard that is and how long we wait. Um, patience is a key factor here. And to really know what patience and settling is, you know, I remember when I went to Tassajara, I told my teacher, I said, oh, you know, I'm really settled. Like, I'm ready for Tassajara. And he said, eh, maybe you'll learn how to settle at Tassajara. And I was so grateful for that comment because I think we vastly underestimate uh, the depth of our, let's say I vastly underestimate the depth of my arrogance of my uh, wanting to have things convenient and have it my way. And this is something that in Asheville and with our Sangha, it, it's a joy to be around people who, who understand this and know how hard it is and then support each other in that really difficult, difficult, this is so important. Buddha said we need to have good Dharma friends because we need friends. We need each other to support ourselves in the midst of this very difficult. We're countering biology. We're countering uh, a kind of conditioning um, that makes us always evaluate the world. Am I getting this? Am I not getting this? Am I going to be comforted and safe? And, constantly on this defense mode. And once you pop out of that, you need a lot of support. When someone's like supports like babies need nurturance, you know, so that we can actually live in a way where there's enough space. You know, when I was in Asheville, it was wonderful to be around people who've practiced a long time in this school, in this kind of Soto San Francisco Zen Center way of Constantly learning, you know, Tassahara and Green Gulch both in the early days were kind of shabby. The Zen students were kind of had a lot of garbage around that they didn't take care of, you know, like weren't so respectful to the environment. 
And more and more we learned, you know, at Tassajara once I came into study hall, which was quiet. And there was a skunk in the cabinet, in the dining room. And somebody whispered, shh, there's a skunk sleeping. And we all just silently entered the dining room and did our study and left. And the person, it was a a quiet announcement that the skunk will leave. And if we're quiet and don't threaten it and harm it. And I think this is how, this is a model for how to approach life, but it takes a lot. You know, we have to start to like, oh, wait a minute. We have to to figure out how to skillfully be, and we have to be willing to make mistakes. We have to be willing to be sprayed by a skunk, but somehow live in, in some kind of harmony. So this is really hard, you know, and it's no um, small thing. But then on the other hand, it's very easy if you don't try to grasp on getting it right all the time, but to see that how we're working in the world together as messy and weird as it is, is just the way the world's working and we're working within that. And that's wholeness. But, but that means in every moment we have to give up thinking that we're going to get it right or do it right. You know, um, all the forms and ceremonies in Zen are basically to teach us how to work together in this careful, kind way, not to get it right and to do it exactly like Dogen did it, <laughs> you know, but to find our way. So I don't know if that's comforting to you, but thank you for pointing out the difficulty, Asian. It was really comforting. Thank you. And, I, and really, um, you know, like you said, there's no one right way just to hear from my Dharma friend some some words in in knowing that someone else shares that struggle, I think is very, very comforting. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Welcome. So this is, you know, like peaceniks want to tell everybody else how to be peaceful. But actually, in our way, we are working to help everybody to bring out the best in everyone including ourselves and to know that there's always, there's always a possibility of some difficulty and pain of arising. That's okay. That's just our practice. You know, Uh, what what, we wouldn't have anything to do if there wasn't some suffering in the world, but it's, we're learning how to support that and relate to it. Um, This is very, very deep. And, you know, we aren't, Uh, kind of sequestered in a quiet, monastic, natural setting, but we're living our lives in this real messy world. And I think this is the hardest practice that we're doing, the hardest practice. Uh, But we're still doing it, which is kind of amazing after, I don't know, Asian, how long has Ancient Dragon been around since Roger's well, I think it'll be 19 years in July that we all started in, you know, the dining room. Right. So we're just babies in this 2,500 year plus tradition. Could you hear the cardinal singing? When I came home, there was a nest of baby robins that had hatched in my entryway. (laughs) So... Okay, so I'd like to 
offer a word at, um, in response um, to this wonderful day today we're having together. Um, I found thinking myself thinking about lineage and how you're carrying forth a particular tradition's lineage, you know, through Soto and branching streams and so forth, and other 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 traditions are brought forth in different kinds of lineages. But all of us are in a in lineage. I'm thinking about being human and bringing forth the the human capacity for compassion, wisdom, um, doing our best to bring out the best, as you put it, um, maybe the, the dharma that can't be defined, just the human life dharma. And and this lineage is no small thing. I mean, it's it's a kind of intentionality, perhaps, that we humans have to, to um, bring light, uh, each in our own individual ways, and it, it's this lineage is is a vocation. You know, it's it's um, as the evening gatha says, life and death are of supreme importance, and not not to squander our chance to live into this vocation. So, thank you for reminding me of just the lineage of of, of that universal um, uh, vocation, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Brian. Yeah. So maybe our lineage, our Soto lineage, our Zen lineage will become more and more inclusive. So we join, we will join, we'll, we'll have our tentacles, you know, extending to all humans. You know, Zen is kind of our, our style, maybe, but it's not trademarked, you know, like we're not the only ones who have this wish. There are many people and, you know, this is one thing about, uh, indulging in too much news is that media and social media now is very much, if you just look, it's completely negative because negative is what gets the click. But there are so many positive things in this world in each moment. And that doesn't cancel the negative or we're not keeping score, but to ground ourselves in the deep reality and that there is something about our human I don't know. You know, maybe we're learning what trees already know, what rocks already know about our deep connectedness. We're just slow learners as humans, but we're trying, you know, the little engine that could. Yeah. Hi, Jerry. Thank you very much for the wonderful talk, Ogetsu. Um, you know, I practiced a long time thinking that it was all about the city. That in some ways it is, but I'm learning that it's also all about the Sangha. And it is very comforting to come to the Sangha and see people who are struggling with the same things I am. And that we're all, we're all doing our best and failing and getting back up and doing it again and doing our best and failing and learning and getting back up and doing it again. And there is, there is a lot of comfort in realizing that other people are doing it with us. That just, helps to continue to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're never, we're not alone. And that feeling of being stuck in isolation, but Sangha is especially important. Maybe it's the most important thing. And it's something we need to learn, I think, very much in America, uh, not just in our Sangha, but in Zen in general, of how to be friendly and kind with each other. You know, we're um, going to have some kind of event at Kathy's to kind of honor this thing that I went through called Dharma transmission. But my hope really was that it could bring us together physically a little bit. So we could be kind of at ease with each other uh, because this is, as you point out, it's not sitting is just like uh, training wheels. <laughs> it supports us in being able to, keep upright 
uh, and learn how to be together. So thank you for that, Jerry. Yes, it's so important. I, I think, too, that Sangha helps counteract that, the zombies that you mentioned. Yeah. That it, it puts it into a, a real-life context and not in a, I'm off, you know, in some cloud trying to save myself sort mm-hmm. of situation. That real, and it, so it brings up a lovingness to the practice that you don't have without the side. Yeah. So when you sit a long time with someone, let's say during a practice period, you, you know, you'll find all of your weapons come out. Like you don't like how that person's sitting next to you. They're making too much noise, you know. Um, But this is how we learn. So Sangha and being with others, no matter what the form is, is how we also learn, you know, when we see that we can hurt other people we we don't it doesn't feel good to us. We know this, you know. Uh, but how to let that go and go? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Gosh, you know, I was a little impatient there, or my voice was a little harsh. Um, and we we help each other. So it's a it's it's such an important thing. It is maybe the whole of the Dharma. I think that's what Buddha said, right? Like a good spiritual friendship is the whole of the Dharma. So thank you for being such a wonderful spiritual friend, Jerry. Are there any... Uh, final offerings. For today, you'll get more chances. So I think our, my final offering will just be, again, you know, heartfelt gratitude and I don't know, how to describe it, but love to all of you for uh, bringing forth this wonderful practice together. And I hope it continues endlessly beyond our imagination. And I think the order of things is we'll do the Bodhisattva vows and then there'll be some announcements And then uh, our wonderful Zoom host, Ruben, will uh, help us uh, do a little service, just online service, chanting the GGU Zamai, the self-fulfilling and self-receiving Samadhi, uh, our great text. So Beings are numberless, I bow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them.
Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it.